Thank you for joining us for this statewide call-in program on COVID-19. I'm Anthony Murnell reporting from KRWG Public Media in Las Cruces. This program is a collaboration between KRWG and New Mexico Public Radio Stations KUNM and KANW in Albuquerque and KENW in Portales. The number to call to ask a question during this program regarding research that has been done so far on coronavirus is 888-922-5794. I'll give that again, 888-922-5794. On Wednesday, New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham issued new orders to limit the spread of the coronavirus by limiting restaurants to takeout service and delivery, as well as closing down movie theaters, gyms, and shopping centers. The governor stressed social distancing during the update and also announced five new positive tests, bringing the state total to 28 infections. Now, we do have some breaking news right now. That number is now at 35 positive tests of COVID-19 in New Mexico. The most recent cases are four people in Bernalillo County, one person in San Miguel County, and two people in Santa Fe County. Joining us for this discussion is infectious disease researcher, Dr. Michael Woods. Dr. Woods is an associate professor and director of the Biosciences Research Laboratory at the Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine in Las Cruces. His research on Uganda plague outbreak response has been honored by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and his work in global security was honored by Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California. Dr. Woods, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Now, I also want to inform our listeners that they can like the KRWG Public Media Facebook page and join in the conversation on our live stream where Casey Counts is anchoring our social media desk. Dr. Woods, I'd like to start off with some facts and can you inform us on the research of what we know so far on COVID-19 and how it originated? Sure. So this is a, uh, a brand new virus. This is, uh, this is a virus we have not previously uh, seen before or necessarily been aware of. So um, just to kind of clarify something up front, when we say COVID-19, uh, what we're actually referring to is the name of the disease that is caused by this new virus. Uh, so COVID-19 uh, stands for Coronavirus Disease 2019, uh, referring to the emergence of this, this uh, new virus uh, at the end of last year. Uh, the name of the virus itself is actually SARS uh, Coronavirus 2 or SARS-CoV-2. And so uh, this is a, a coronavirus, which uh, is a type of virus that we're all um, very familiar with already. Uh, coronaviruses are a common cause of the common cold, uh, and typically we're exposed to these um, fairly regularly uh, in our lives. Uh, this particular virus uh, appears to have originated in bats. Uh, that is based on uh, genetic sequencing information we have on the virus, indicating that its closest relative uh, is actually a virus that's previously been found in bats. And so that is likely the route that this virus took, uh, jumping from bats, uh, possibly through an intermediate host, uh, and then into the human population. Uh, so that's what we know about the origins of this virus so, f so far. If you're just joining us, we are discussing research on COVID-19. With us is Dr. Michael Woods. He is an infectious disease researcher and director of the Biosciences Research Laboratory at the Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine in Las Cruces. The number to call to ask a question is 888-922-5794. Or you can go ahead and like the KRWG Public Media Facebook page and join in the conversation there as well. We are going to go ahead and take some calls right now. We have a call from Peter regarding coronavirus. Peter, are you with us? Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, my question is about 
four weeks ago, the middle of February, I did develop something that seemed to me similar to, to what we're talking about now, like mainly respiratory, uh, very difficult to breathe and a lot of congestion in the lungs. And I'm wondering if I could have had the coronavirus back then, about four weeks ago, mid-February. Dr. Woods, can you kind of explain to us um, what the research shows us, how the virus really interacts with the body? Well, so the, the virus um, actually enters the body uh, through a, a mucous membrane. That could be the mouth, the nose, even the eyes, um, or, of course, the lungs. Um, and that seems to be where this virus first uh, attacks the body and, and um, infects the body. And from there, it replicates, and then it can spread within the body, and it often spreads to the lungs. Um, so that's why the symptoms that are seen uh, usually relatively early in the disease, the cough, um, the fever, those reflect uh, the changes that are occurring in our upper respiratory tract as this infection is, is taking hold. Okay. Um, now, what in the symptoms? The symptoms, the symptoms uh, that are consistent with this infection, cough, fever, and shortness of breath, um, which are actually very similar to the flu and, and other respiratory illnesses. All right. Uh, Peter, are you feeling better now? I'm feeling better, but I'm. My question is: Is there will the test that they're giving now will that show if you already have it? If you right. Had it? So that's a, so that's a, an important question. So the test that we're using right now to diagnose this infection uh, detects the presence of uh, the virus itself. It's looking for fragments of the virus's genome, its genetic material. And so the test that's being used and that we're going to start seeing uh, being used uh, much more widely here in the state um, over the next few days uh, really gives a positive signal only while you are actively infected and uh, while virus is present. Now, someone that was previously infected perhaps four weeks ago, um, chances are today the virus is no longer present. And so at that point, what we need is a measure of an indirect measurement of past infection. And often how that's done is looking for the presence of antibodies that are specific to the virus. And so that's a different type of test. Um, that is not what's being uh, used uh, right now widely. But I, uh, my guess is that as we move forward, uh, those types of tests may be become uh, or may become um, uh, more available, uh, and that's what it would take to give us, um, uh, you know, evidence of uh, how long the virus has perhaps been present in the population without us knowing. Okay, uh, we oh. want to. I'm sorry. Did you have a follow up real quick? We have we have some other calls. Well, just a short one. So I'm understanding that it it showed its head here in about January. Is that correct? So. There's a very good possibility that, yeah, we could have uh, been exposed to it, you know, the beginning of February and, and had it already. Is that true? Um, you know, we can't rule that out uh, without further data. Um, I would say that um, we have been looking for the virus in critically ill patients um, since we first started detecting um, uh, infections here in the U.S., um, could there have been uh, other infections present in the community? It's possible, uh, but we really need uh, data to say for, say for sure. All right, Peter, we want to thank you for the call. We are now going to Ted. Ted, do you have a question uh, for Dr. Woods? Yes, I sure do. I'm interested in knowing uh, what a person should do when they bring food home from the store and also uh, whether or not microwaving uh, bring-home food, or take-out food, I should call it, uh, is a way of disinfecting. Um, I, I have thought possibly uh, about washing the food with the hose outside and letting it air dry and then bringing it in. Um, 
could you discuss that topic? Thank you, Ted. Well, what I will say is that heat generally is effective at um, controlling um, uh, microbial pathogens. Uh, this particular virus does not have any necessarily uh, unique features that makes it uh, more resistant to heat. So uh, to be perfectly honest, I haven't seen data uh, with this specific virus uh, demonstrating um, uh, that microwave is effective, but generally speaking, um, uh, reheating food um, certainly um, to the point uh, probably well in excess of 120, 130 degrees um, uh, generally is effective at, at destroying uh, pathogens. Now, as far as washing food, you know, I, I guess I would say that uh, generally it's a good idea to wash produce um, and that type of, of food when we, when we bring it home. Um, but overall, I would say uh, the risk of uh, bringing this, this organism home on food is probably relatively low um, compared to acquiring it from um, someone ill in the community. Um, but again, that's, um, that's a good question. Um, but I have n I've seen no, no evidence or no data to indicate that food is a major um, vector of transmission in this, in this case. If you're just joining us, we are talking COVID-19 in New Mexico. Our guest in studio is Dr. Michael Woods, an infectious disease researcher. He is director of the Biosciences Research Laboratory at the Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine in Las Cruces. The number to call to ask a question is 888-922-5794. You can also ask a question on our Facebook page, the KRWG Public Media Facebook page, where Casey Counts is anchoring our social media desk. Uh, we are now going to another caller. Sarah has a question. Hi, Sarah. Hi. When I was a kid, before vaccinations were universal, the doctor would take blood, take two or three days to identify the bug, and then inject an antigen. It comes from the blood of people who have recovered it, and then it's grown in eggs, from what I remember. Um, is that something that we can develop? So... Um so when we say injecting an antigen, um, usually what that refers to is, is injecting a, a, often a protein uh, from the, the, the pathogen or from the virus itself, and that is uh, essentially the basis of vaccination. Now, um, what we are seeing uh, discussed in the medical literature is the possibility of doing essentially a passive immunity um, a transfer of passive immunity by taking the serum from people that have recovered uh, from coronavirus disease uh, and actually using that uh, to treat, um, to treat uh, people that are actively infected. And the basis of that, um, at least the, the theory of that, is based on the presence of neutralizing antibodies in those patients that have recovered. Um, this is something I know has been looked at in China. Uh, I have not seen, uh, again, I haven't seen published literature um, demonstrating that, that that is a uh, reliable outcome, but that is often used in, to treat other infections. Okay. Yeah. I just used the wrong word, antigen. I should have said antibody. But <laughs> okay. I think it would be a good idea to develop here. Th thank you so much for the, for the call, Sarah. We are going now to David, who has a question. Hi, David. Hi, thanks for taking my phone call. I'm up in Taos, New Mexico. Um, so, you know, I've been trying to read, you know, read online and, and as best I can as a layperson break down information and statistics, even though I know they're ever-changing and moving about, um, you know, the, the dangers, the death rates of, per, you know, per people infected and everything. One of the reasons I have been doing this is that I, I feel like I get a lot of pushback from people in my community, relatively speaking, um, that there's fear-mongering going on, that it's blown out of proportion, people are outright saying there's not a lot of danger, and um, I want to be armed with a rebuttal to that. I have a lot of respect for the world healthcare professionals, people with PhDs, and I don't think that they would be um, 
calling for for the conditions you know that we're all putting ourselves in isolation and uh, social distancing if it were not for a good reason so a lot of people are citing common flu and the deaths and the statistics of common flu this year from previous years and the rate that people die from it and pointing out that much less people are dying from this COVID-19 and I would like to have a little bit of uh, understanding shed on why health professionals are being so cautious around this and how you would distinguish it from the dangers of the common flu. You know, David, you, you bring up an interesting thing, uh, Dr. Woods. You know, some have made statements downplaying the danger of COVID-19 by comparing it to the flu. Um, can you kind of explain why that's a, a false comparison? Well, I think there's a few important things that we have to consider here. One, we're at still in the early stages of this um, epidemic here in the United States. Um, uh, this is a virus that uh, we have no pre-existing immunity to in our population, which means that um, most, if not all of us, are susceptible to the virus. And the other issue is that we have no countermeasures uh, currently uh, against this virus. We have a vaccine uh, that we um, use every year uh, to vaccinate people against the flu. Uh, we can use that to target vulnerable populations. We can use that in children. Uh, you know, we're all encouraged to get that, and that works um, uh, very well um, at, at helping uh, reduce the numbers of flu every year. Now, we do still have tens of thousands of deaths from flu every year here in this country. Um, and that is based on a case fatality rate that's generally around 0.1%. Okay? Mm -hmm. The data that we're seeing come out of places like South Korea where, we're, where there's been uh, a very large-scale testing, so we have a little bit more confidence in the true number of infections is showing that the case fatality rate in this case is approximately 10 times that, or around 1%. Okay, so if we think about this infection spreading through the population, potentially being able to infect a vast majority of us over time, and if that 1% case fatality rate holds up, then we're talking about very large numbers of deaths. Um, and that's why we're seeing the response that we're seeing and that we are trying to get ahead of this. We are trying to reduce the rate of spread through the population so that we can protect those people that are most vulnerable to the severe complications. And hopefully over time, we'll be able to uh, develop an effective vaccine that we can then start deploying uh, to help control uh, this pandemic. But, I, you know, that's obviously a, a question that comes up a lot. Um, you know, flu is with us constantly. Uh, it, it, it cycles through our population seasonally, um, and we have a certain familiarity with it. Um, but there are some differences here. Um, one of those is that, that higher case fatality rate, the fact that we have no way uh, to induce immunity in the population right now outside of you know, acquiring that naturally. Um, so I, I do think there is reason for us to be concerned about the long-term implications of this, and, and it's important that we try to get ahead of it. Um, we don't have a full picture on what the outcome is going to be, um, uh, whereas we can fairly reliably predict that in any given year with influenza, um, but, but I do think that uh, we recognize that this is a, a serious enough concern that, that we need to implicate or, uh, or uh, apply some fairly um, robust measures to, to, again, try to get ahead of this. Okay, thanks for the call, David. Uh, if you're just joining us, we are talking COVID-19 in New Mexico. Good afternoon, I'm Anthony Moreno. I am reporting from KRWG Public Media in Las Cruces. This program is a collaboration between KRWG and New Mexico Public Radio Stations, KUNM and KANW in Albuquerque and KENW in Portales. The number to call to ask a question on the research, what we know, is 888-922-5794. You can also join in the conversation on our social media desk. Our guest is Dr. Michael Woods. He is an infectious disease researcher 
and Associate Professor and Director of the Biosciences Research Laboratory at the Braille College of Osteopathic Medicine in Las Cruces. Speaking of social media, we are going to our social media desk right now where Casey Counts is. Casey, good afternoon. What are people saying on social media? Do we have any questions? Yes, but let me first start by giving a shout out to my Greyhounds of ENMU listening in Portales today. Um, and Marie had a question for us. Given that younger doctors in China succumb to the illness, is the amount of virus a person is exposed to related to how severe their symptoms can be? Uh, that's a great question. Um, we don't have any data um, uh, with this particular virus that speaks to that. We can say that uh, generally there is a dose response um, uh, to most infectious agents. And so when we study other um, infectious agents, one of the important uh, measures, uh, certainly in animal models of infection, is the infectious dose or even the infectious dose, or even the lethal dose. And so there is often a relationship there uh, between dose, um, between outcomes, um, and likelihood of survival. So we have no data to, to suggest um, what that might be with this particular virus. Um, uh, and that's, again, those are very hard measurements to make in people. Um, uh, it is something that is often calculated in animal models that are used to explore the pathogenesis of these infections, um, but that is a, a fairly common phenomenon that we see, um, uh, again, that relationship between um, infectious dose and uh, outcomes. All right, thank you very much. And as a follow-up, um, it seems like we're seeing more and more younger people being actually hospitalized with COVID-19, say 25 to 44 age group. Is that something that you're seeing as well? Well, certainly there are uh, numerous uh, news reports out there floating around that, that um, tend to point to this. Most of the data that, that these recommendations have been based on so far to date um, have been based on um, the studies that, that have come out of China and their uh, experience dealing with this beginning in January or even actually as far back as December um, and through January and the February. There was one study in particular that looked at tens of thousands of, of documented infections in China and uh, based on that data um, there was a pretty uh, convincing trend um, a relationship rather uh, between age and uh, likelihood of um, a severe uh, complication or severe um, or poor outcomes. Uh, it's possible that we will see those trends change as we get more data out of places like Europe and Italy and even here in the country. Um, but for the most part, most of the data we have still indicates that uh, the elderly are high risk those with underlying health conditions um, are at higher risk for severe complications. Um, I think that we will start to um, see more data published that um, if there is um, a relationship or a, a change in those trends, um, that will, will show up in the data. Um, but at this point, um, I, I don't know that there's sufficient data out there that's been published to say that um, Otherwise, healthy young people are at any higher risk um, than anyone else at this point. Yeah, you bring up a good point, an interesting uh, point that reminds me of the recent New York Times article that was published uh, on the new report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that found out nearly 2,500 recorded cases in the U.S. Uh, out of the first cases, the oldest patients, uh, they cited had the greatest likelihood of dying, but out of the 508 patients known to have been hospitalized, uh, that report says 38% were between 20 and 54. Does does that kind of make you think of anything that we may um, that may concern you or any thoughts on well, that? Well, there's always going to be a distribution, right? Um, there's always going to be um, a range. 
um, associated with these data. And so um, we cannot say that um, those that are in their 20s or 30s will never have a severe outcome. Um, uh, there will be individuals in those populations that um, for reasons we may be able to explain or potentially for reasons we can't explain yet um, will have uh, overall a negative outcome. Um, but if we look at the data in bulk so far, um, there, it does tend to um, weight more heavily um, towards the, the older population. Now it's possible that um, you know, young people that are um, potentially dealing with uh, other comorbidities um, they may, uh, you know, be at be at increased uh, risk, even though they're young. Um, they might have underlying risk factors, um, but at this point, um, I haven't seen uh, sufficient data um, that indicates that um, young people are especially vulnerable here. In fact, as and and I think uh, we all appreciate that. Um, those that are under 20 years old uh, rarely um, experience uh, severe complications. Okay, if you're just joining us, we are talking COVID-19 in New Mexico. Our guest is Dr. Michael Woods. He is an infectious disease researcher. His research on Uganda plague outbreak response has been honored by the Centers for Disease Control. The number to call to ask a question is 888 888- Nine two two five seven nine four. Now I do want to let you know that we have uh, a constant ring out going on right now. So hang on with us. If you don't want to wait, you can go to our Facebook page and like the KRWG Public Media Facebook page, where Casey Counts is anchoring our social media desk. You can join in the conversation there. We're now going to the phone lines, and we have, I believe, Christy waiting to uh, ask a question. Christy, thanks for joining us. Christy, are you there? I actually just called to listen in. Oh, okay. Well, you can also uh, join in our Facebook page if you want to carry on there. Uh, Thank you for calling in. Um, We are now going to go to Marcy, who has a question. Um, Marcy, good afternoon, and thanks for joining us. Do you have a question for Dr. Woods? Hi, yes, I do. So I'm a teacher. I'm 67. I work with students one-to-one. I have a a student load of about 12 students, and their ages are 9 to 15. And this week I've taken off. Next week my school would like me to resume working with students one-to-one, and I would be working about 30 hours, so that would be my exposure time. And um, my classroom is very small, and... The students' homes um, have parents that are working in very public settings. So they include nurses, people who work at airports. So my question, two questions. First is, how should we regard one-to-one settings? Is that safe if we take precautions? And second question, if I am meeting with students next week ongoing, would it be recommended that we wear both wear masks, uh, hand washing when they enter and leave, uh, that we you know keep the distance, and of course I'd be cleaning in between each uh, student. Oh, thanks for the question, uh, Marcy. So uh, yeah, th- this is a this is an important question. Um, you know. First of all, it is important uh, whenever we're interacting right now, I think, to, to keep those precautions in mind, right? Frequent hand washing, um, you know, cleaning surfaces on a fairly regular basis, um, uh, avoiding people that are, uh, that are sick, that are potentially sneezing and coughing. Um, you know, that's really why the six-foot radius is, is what we've seen as the recommendation. And the reason why this is important is because what the data are starting to show us uh, there was a, a paper published on Monday in the journal Science that showed that, um, uh, and again, this study came out of China, that showed that the majority of the infections they documented, 80% of the infections they documented uh, were acquired from someone that was not documented to be infected. 
And what this is telling us is that it is the unidentified infections that are actually driving the transmission um, uh, in the population. And so unfortunately, um, what that means is that some people are going to be infected, they're going to be capable of transmitting the infection, but they may not necessarily be sick, be, be overtly ill, um, and, uh, and they may even be either pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic, um, but still possibly um, uh, capable of transmitting the infection. That's why it's important that we uh, ramp up testing and start to identify um, people that, that are infected. Um, so in your particular case, I think, first of all, if, if you're going to be working in that environment, it is important to certainly exercise those additional precautions, um, cleaning, you know, good uh, hygiene practices um, to try to reduce the potential um, for any transmission to occur if, it's, if, it's, um, if you happen to be around um, someone that's infected. The, the good news, I guess I would say, is that... Um, at least in the pediatric population, um, and again, based on uh, the data I've seen so far, um, the children don't seem to be don't seem to be acquiring the infections at the same rate, um, and and we need more data there to say for sure. Um, but a relatively small number of total infections are actually documented to occur in children, so that's. Um, possibly good news, um, uh, although we need to keep our eye on that. As far as masks, um, I think if someone is um, ill, um, if they are coughing or sneezing, then a mask is an important uh, way to control uh, the potential for them to uh, spread those large particle droplets um, into the environment around them or, or into someone else. Um, the, uh, as far as wearing one to prevent um, uh, acquiring it from someone, that's, of course, an important uh, means of, of protecting our health care workers. Um, you know, at this point, I believe that the New Mexico Department of Health, their guidance is, um, uh, and I would encourage you to, to go to their website and, and see what they say about this and even reach out and look at the CDC's website for their guidance. Um, but I believe their guidance at the current time does not recommend um, those that are uh, not ill or not infected um, uh, does not recommend that, that they wear a mask. Um, uh, and, and that's part of that is to help um, preserve those resources for our healthcare workers that will be in contact with infected patients. So, um, you know, that's, that's a bit of a challenging uh, situation. Um, I think, um, I guess my recommendation is to practice those standard precautions um, uh, main, try to maintain a clean environment, um, and if encourage the people you're around, the families you're around, um, the, the kids you're around, that if they are sick, um, that needs to be known by everyone um, uh, and uh, taken into consideration. So I wish I could give you a, maybe a, a stronger recommendation than that, but, um, you know, just some things to uh, consider. All right, we do have another caller, but first I want to give that website. Uh, the New Mexico Department of Health has dedicated a site for you to stay informed and updated on coronavirus. That website is cv.nmhealth.org. Uh, that is cv.nmhealth.org. Uh, we now are going to go to another call. We have Ken joining us. Good afternoon, Ken. Hi. Hi. Do you have a question? Yes. I heard earlier on your thing something about the interaction or the cause way back about bats. We live uh, way out in the country where we get a lot of bats every summer, sometimes spring and fall, and they live in our porch up in the rafters and there's droppings all over the place. So is uh, there any correlation between all these bats and a higher risk of getting this stuff? Uh no, not that I'm aware of. Um, you know, bats, bats are, uh, uh, they carry all sorts of uh, diseases, not the least of which is rabies, uh, which is a major reason to avoid bats um, and, and avoid interacting with bats. Um, but uh, no, um, I, I, uh, I'm aware of no reason why the presence of bats 
um, here, um, certainly in this region, would, would have any uh, correlation to a higher likely, likelihood of being exposed to, to this particular virus. All right. Thank you very much for the call, Ken. We now are going to another caller. We have Sand standing by. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, two questions for you. Actually, I'm a provider in the ER at Memorial, by the way. Um, Thanks for joining us. How long does this virus reside on uh, metallic and other surfaces? And question number two is, why does it take 12 to 18 months for a, uh, for a vaccine to become, get developed and available to the public? Okay, good question. So the first question, if I heard you uh, correctly, was how long does this virus survive on surfaces? Um, the New England Journal of Medicine published a paper uh, just this week um, uh, uh, by some researchers, I believe, out of the NIH um, Integrated Research Facility in Maryland that demonstrated that uh, SARS-CoV-2 can survive on copper surfaces for uh, really only a few hours, but uh, can survive on plastic and stainless steel surfaces for up to, to three days. Um, they were able to detect um, a viable virus um, as far out as three days after um, inoculating these surfaces under experimental conditions. And so realize that those are typically under very, those experiments are conducted under very um, controlled environmental conditions. Um, uh, those are surfaces that are not typically exposed to UV light unless that's part of the study. Um, but what that illustrates is that interior surfaces, for example, in a hospital, um, have the potential to, to hold viable virus for, for a not insignificant amount of time. So that's why regular cleaning uh, becomes important here with, with EPA-approved disinfectants. Um, the second question was, why does it take so long to get a vaccine? Um, and that's an important question. So let me just give everyone a little bit of background on what's happening with vaccine development. Um, so a phase one clinical trial um, evaluating an investigational vaccine actually began this week on Monday at the Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute in Seattle. Um, and so this is a trial that's sponsored by the NIH um, and is going to enroll 45 healthy adult volunteers between the ages of 18 and 55. Um, and each of those volunteers is going to receive two doses of this experimental vaccine each 28 days apart. But then they're going to be followed for a year. And this is, this is the typical path that an experimental vaccine takes um, through a phase one clinical trial, which is to evaluate, um, first of all, safety. And so uh, we have to ensure that this experimental vaccine uh, is not going to cause any adverse events um, uh, to occur and, and, and people that, that receive the vaccine. There have been examples of that that have occurred in the past. Um, and so that's very important to determine, one, the safety, but then two, also to determine um, whether there's a response and, and whether that response is appropriate um, based on uh, the desired outcomes. And so uh, these patients, these 45 patients, these 45 volunteers are going to be monitored for a year um, beginning uh, from this week. Um, and if at the end the data uh, demonstrate that, that, that those two doses were safe um, and that there was a response by the immune system, uh, then the, the trial will progress to um, a much larger um, uh, distribution of the vaccine into a much larger study group and potentially um, can move forward from there. Um, but you know, we've heard, learned some hard lessons in the past when it comes to biologics, therapeutics, and vaccines. Um, there's no guarantee that um, there's not going to be some unintended consequence uh, from the vaccine. Um, and so these studies uh, take a standard path um, to ensure that we're developing something that's safe. And that's really why it takes so long. Um, uh, and, and so that's again, gets back to this issue of why we need to uh, control the rate of the spread of the infection, um, allow people like you, um, you know, in Memorial Medical Center and Mountain View and hospitals all over the country um, to be able to manage the, the number of patients that are potentially going to require care, um, to be able to give them the care that they need um, and get us out to a point where hopefully um, 
you know, in a, a year to 18 months, we're, we're talking about uh, a vaccine that can be deployed on, on a wider scale. Sam, thank you so much for the questions. And I also want to invite you to join us on our Facebook page where we are continuing the conversation. We have uh, Casey Counts at our Facebook page taking questions from folks. Casey, uh, I know it, you have some more questions. Yes, Wesley wants to know, uh, says, as an expert in microbiology research, what resources would Dr. Woods recommend as being the most credible and up-to-date with regard to emerging data and studies on the virulence factors, incubation period, et cetera, on this particular virus? So I would uh, recommend a few resources uh, that um, uh, I follow uh, as far as uh, data that's, that's coming out and that's uh, high quality and that's reliable and that's informative. And, and two of those um, are the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, so JAMA has an uh, a entire page dedicated to coronavirus resources, including interviews with people like uh, Anthony Fauci um, and other um, leaders in the field. Um, New, the New England Journal of Medicine is another um, high-quality uh, journal that uh, has a dedicated coronavirus uh, resource page. Um, those are two that I probably follow um, the closest. Um, a lot of that will be clinical information, uh, what we're learning about the disease in people. Um, as we start to see more and more studies, um, as more and more research groups and laboratories bring the virus into their lab and start to explore the, the biology of the virus, how it's working, um, what the virulence factors are and how they function, um, you know, we'll start to see those types of studies pop up in other journals as well. Um, uh, and so certainly, you know, any reputable um, scientific journal, um, uh, you know, uh, should be a, a, a pretty good resource, but I would recommend JAMA and the New England Journal um, probably as two places to start, uh, at least right now. Do you have another question, Casey? Yes, Emmanuel wants to know, is the testing that will be conducted, be, uh, is it going to be an immediate result or will it take a few days to get results? So uh, what's going to happen with the testing is um, as this testing becomes more common, and we're, we're, we're likely going to see some, some testing available um, or more testing available throughout the state um, uh, as we move through uh, the weekend and into early next week, um, uh, that testing will be uh, primarily, at least initially, my understanding is that testing will be directed at those that are uh, showing symptoms that are consistent with infection or that have a travel history to specific locations where we know there is uh, a high degree of community transmission. Um, uh, those individuals will receive a, a nasal uh, swab, um, and that swab will be uh, placed in a vial of, of liquid uh, vial transport media, and then it will be sent uh, to the New Mexico State Health Lab in Albuquerque um, or possibly to uh, the Tricor Lab, which is a, a public-private uh, uh, partnership that emerged out of UNM. And, um, and those laboratories are qualified or certified to run the CDC-approved diagnostic technique. Um, but that will take um, a period of, of likely a few days um, to turn around um, an answer on that. So it is not, a, it is not an instant um, uh, diagnostic technique. It's, it's not a rapid test like we get in at the doctor's office uh, for flu or strep. You know, this is not something that can be turned around in 15 minutes. It, it is going to take um, a few, you know, a couple or, or several days possibly to, to run the sample through the test um, to run the test, to, to get the results back and report those results back um, uh, to those individuals. We want to remind folks that you can visit the New Mexico Department of Health website at cv.nmhealth.org. There are also some numbers that you can call. Casey, um, I believe you have some numbers for folks to call if they need more information. Um, that's funny. When you asked ab about numbers, Anthony, I thought you were talking <laughs> about the latest numbers in terms of the totals well, for we can tests go, we in can, New Mexico. Okay. So no, do you have those as I well? do. That is what I have in front of me now. And uh, the New Mexico State health officials announced that there had been seven additional positive tests for COVID-19. So I believe that brings us to 35. Right now, Bernalillo County has 20. 
Uh, there were seven in Santa Fe County, four in Sandoval County, Socorro County has two, San Miguel County has one, and Taos County has one. How long will it be before we hear that Doniana County or the southern counties are reporting mm. coronavirus cases? Thank you, Casey. We appreciate it. Uh, we are now going to move on to some other callers. If you are joining us, we're talking COVID-19 in New Mexico. Our guest is Dr. Michael Woods, an associate professor and director of the Biosciences Research Laboratory at the Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine in Las Cruces. He is answering your questions. We're now going to the phones where we have KC with a question. Hi, KC. Hello. Do you have a question? Hello. Hi. Yes. Hi. Dr. Woods, um, I would, uh, I'm very curious to know, in the late 1990s, I was teaching high school at a New Mexico public school. I was the last person to receive the flu vaccine. I rushed up there after the announcement came over the intercom. Uh, about eight and a half hours later, I began to feel ill, quite ill, and I ended up having to quit the job because I had to be out more than 55 days. I had unstoppable mucus in my lungs. I was actually afraid for, I thought it could even mean death at the time. Uh, when I went to two different MDs and a naturopathic physician, all three of whom told me never to take such a vaccine again, even though two, not every year, but two or three times previous to that, I had taken flu vaccines without a reaction. When I called the school, they said, uh, well, there's no such thing as getting the flu from this vaccine. Perhaps you were allergic to uh, dead chicken embryos. It was not a live, uh, a live organism that produced this vaccine. Uh, my question is, what is the source of the vaccine under investigation? And in a case like this, I have been very hesitant, I'll be honest with you. Since that time, I have never taken another flu vaccine. Um, I have no symptoms. I'm quite sure I don't have the um, coronavirus at this time, but it does create a lot of apprehension about going out into public at a time like this. And I was wondering um, how you would view this with regard to the current vaccine under investigation and why, what your, your thought was about, uh, it took um, two and a half months to get over the first stage of that and five months uh, for me actually feel healthy again and it was a devastating experience i was just wondering how you would look at it well with respect to the vaccine that's under investigation right now this is actually um an, an mrna vaccine so actually what's being delivered or what's being explored as part of this vaccine is delivering a fragment of genetic information that is going to result in production of one specific component of this virus um, and hopefully induce an immune response against that single fragment of the virus um, that will be protective and that the immune system will then recognize that fragment in the presence of live virus and then be able to attack it. So um, the vaccine that's under investigation um, cannot possibly uh, cause um, an infection um, because there is no intact virus present. Now with respect to potential adverse outcomes from vaccination, um, we, have, we have some vaccines that are considered live attenuated vaccines, meaning those are pathogens that have been weakened uh, to a point where they are still alive, um, but they lack certain uh, factors that make them especially uh, virulent. Um, and that what that does is that allows um, the immune response to overcome that um, infection and generate a protective immune response. Um, in the case of the flu vaccine every year, um, typically that is uh, a, a, uh, a vaccine that lacks live um, virus. Um, and that's why uh, you were probably told, well, there's no possible way that you could have gotten the flu from this, um, and generally that's true. Um, but certainly in the past, we've, we've had to add certain components to vaccines um, to help stimulate an immune response, and we've seen historically that sometimes those components um, in, in uh, rare instances 
can cause adverse events, um, and it's possible that's what happened to you. I, I can't fully explain um, your situation, um, uh, but that's why we do these safety studies. Um, that's why uh, it takes 12 to 18 months to talk about having a vaccine that's useful, um, because we need to ensure that there aren't um, going to be uh, responses that are potentially detrimental um, within a, a large population of people. Um, you know, we can't always predict uh, the outcome, um, but by doing these studies, hopefully we can reduce or at least identify things like that that might be common, identify them early, and then take a different path. Um, so generally, uh, our vaccine technology today um, is generally very safe. Um, we have novel ways to deliver vaccines that are much safer than how we did in the past. Um, and, and our technology has allowed us to identify ways to create vaccines relatively quickly. The fact that we're talking about a vaccine here in March for a virus that we really didn't know about until the beginning of the year, uh, that's, that's extraordinary. Um, and uh, these new techniques we have um, are intended to help reduce the potential for any adverse outcome. All right, thank you for the call. We are now going to go to Chris. This may be our last call. Chris, thanks for joining us. Hi. Um, hopefully just very quickly. I heard earlier, and I've read studies are, uh, about um, the virus staying on stainless steel and plastic for 72 hours and on cardboard for 24. Question, um, how long would it stay on regular paper, such as mail, and or money, cash? Other question I have is um, wearing the mask, the, uh, the facial mask for protection, is that a one-time wear or should you, I mean, can I use it more than once and stay safe? Or is, is it a disposable thing that you have to use a separate one each and every time? Okay, we just have about 30 seconds uh, for this answer. With respect to uh, how long it survives on paper or cash, anything I would say would be speculation at this point. I haven't seen data that demonstrates um, uh, how, what that period of time is. Um, with respect to using masks, uh, unfortunately what we're seeing is that our healthcare providers are needing to stretch the time out that they use their masks because there is currently a, a shortage of access to those masks. Um, uh, that is not ideal. Um, hopefully that supply chain is going to open up here soon. Um, uh, but, um, you know, again, as, how long is it effective? I, 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 can't, um, I can't say for sure. Yeah. Dr. Michael Woods is an associate professor and director of the Biosciences Research Lab at the Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine in Las Cruces. Dr. Woods, thank you so much for joining us for this program. We also want to thank you for joining us for the statewide call-in program on COVID-19. I'm Anthony Moreno with KRWG Public Media. This was in part of collaboration with New Mexico Public Radio Stations, KUNM and KANW in Albuquerque and KENW in Portales. Dr. Woods, are you still there? I'm here. All right. Thank you so much for...